train. Jump on the Steve train. We real estate disruptors. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Real Estate Disruptors. Today, we've got Eddie Speed with No School, a mentor of mine. And Eddie did fly in from South Lake, Texas to talk about the creative strategies you must know in 2023. Now, as you guys are aware, I am on a mission to create 100 millionaires. The information on this show alone is enough to help you become a millionaire in the next five to seven years. If you will take consistent action, you will become one. And the show is brought to you by our sister company, InvestorLift. Get access to 2 million cash buyers across the country. Go to InvestorLift.com, put in Disruptors to get 10% off. And if you get value today, please tag a friend below, share this episode right now. That way we can all grow together. And this is a live show, so please ask your questions for Eddie to answer. You ready? I'm ready. All right. So I'm going to come straight at it because you had a very important conversation this morning. Yeah. Right? So you texted me a day or two ago. I was like, hey, Steve, might be a little late arriving to, the, to your office. I got this important, important meeting that I got to have. What was this important meeting? Well, for eight years now, we've been uh, at the uh, foot of the table mm-hmm. of Congress and lawmakers in Washington, D.C. because of Dodd-Frank. And so uh, Congressman Andy Barr, who is from Lexington, Kentucky, uh, and he is chairman of the Financial Services Committee in Congress, and he was at my office at 9 o'clock this morning. Chairman of the Financial Services He, he is, and a great guy. Really, yeah. really, really respect him. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, he was at our office this morning, and the Seller Finance Coalition bill is is it, they're putting it in motion uh, and and uh, this bill that there's revisions to the bill so there's revisions that we think are probably the best this time that we're have ever gonna had gotcha and uh, and, and it relates to people offering seller financing and not having to be under the let's be honest about it the thumb of Dodd Frank right well. First of all, thank you for for doing this. You know, it's something that I brought it before on a different show, Pardon the Disruption, but like we can all talk about creative finance and advanced seller strategies, this and that. But like Eddie is genuinely representing us in Congress, right, to talk about these important topics. Now, um, we were also in a different uh, super group, uh, a different uh, mastermind some time ago, a super group, right? Scott Oots runs it and uh, I'm in there and you were there. And I was talking about like, Compliance, right? It's a yeah. word that Eddie preaches. Yep. And it's a word that Steve doesn't really understand, right? But it's really important to you. And so let's talk about the effect that Dodd Frank had on the industry and then what changes we're potentially seeing with this new bill. So um, when, when Dodd Frank was adopted, then seller financing fell into Dodd Frank. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll tell you, absolutely, I believe that the reason that we were there is because our industry did, was not, we didn't collaborate well together, and we, had, we didn't have a seat at the table. We had no lobby effort, and we didn't have a seat at the table. So guess what? We were on the table. We were on the menu, right? <laughs> yeah, well, we've got a bunch of cowboys exactly. out there. Yeah. And uh, so, so seller financing uh, more than three transactions in a year, you are essentially treated like a bank, which means that you have to be compliant with Dodd Frank. Yeah, which means you had to have an in-house underwriting or some sort of. You 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 normally can get an 
in, in most every situation, you can outsource the underwriter, mm-hmm. uh, but it has to be done. And there's a lot of provisions in Dodd-Frank uh, that, that are very restrictive in what you can do as a lender and then later as an owner of the notes. So uh, this revision will allow 24 transactions in a year yeah. um, that without Dodd-Frank. Now, let me specify this. It still means that you have to verify income. Mm-hmm. And verifying income is just smart, right? It's good for the borrower, and it's good for you as the it's lender. It's good for business. Exactly. So Because you can sell so a crappy you, note. So you know. you, yeah. And so, uh, um, you know, I, I've been teased, as you know, in masterminds and stuff. You know, Eddie said, if you don't do your seller financing right, you're going to go to jail. Well, I'm not saying you're going to go to jail, but I'm saying that you might be highly disappointed in finding out what the fines are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> highly disappointed because there's like a per infraction situation, that right? Normally there is. Yeah, like um, off the top of your head, you know what it is like for every violation of Dodd Frank. I I I believe I'm saying this correct. Now this this doesn't mean that every scenario that you're maximized, but it could be literally up to twenty thousand dollars per transaction. I mean, it would be so oppressive you wouldn't want to think about it. Yeah, that could that could put you out of business pretty quick. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and it was because uh, uh, Jimmy Vreeland, right? he's been in the show and he's a consistent member uh, or, or panelist on, on Pardon the Disruption. Love the guy, love his high energy, and he came on to CG. He's like, "Hey guys, I've got this great strategy. Here's what we do, and it doesn't really matter what the situation is as long as they're willing." To make those payments, we're good. And you were the one, if I if I recall correctly in the story, like, hang on, Jimmy. What you're talking about here can get you in a lot of serious trouble. Yeah, and specifically, I gave I, I said Google these stories. Mm-hmm. And of course, when when you Google the stories, it's like, oh my goodness, mm-hmm. you know, there was it was all over the press. But he didn't know. I've right. been in the industry for years. Uh, and I, so I hope we've, we- it, it's not solely me, right? The right. Seller Finance Coalition and sellerfinancecoalition.org, right? And that's the, that's the grassroots effort that we have in doing this. And, uh, you know, but I think we have a trusted, they, they, they believe that we are good guys and they believe we're trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And hopefully we'll, I think we'll get this law done. I really do. Uh, but we need a lot of help. We need a lot of support. We don't just, it just doesn't need to be Eddie and a handful of guys, right? Yeah, well, what kind of help and support? What, so what you guys need? we really need two things. Obviously, we have a lobby effort, and so we need people to help us with the lobby effort. Yeah. And then the other thing is, Steve, is that we, uh, wh- whenever we go on these uh, lobby campaigns and, and go on the Hill, right, in D.C., that when we go in a congressman's office or we go in a senator's office, guess what they ask? Well, is there anybody in in my area? There is anybody that's in our district that um, that does this, and so we need people that are all across the country that actively do this, mm-hmm. that they can because they realize they're helping their constituency. Gotcha. That's okay. a huge thing. So if you guys are listening, you guys got to raise your hands. Is there like a registration on the, the website? Yeah, you can go there and you can register. And uh, so right now we're really trying to gather up. In fact, Congressman Barr this morning had a, had a little group of us there, and he was specifically talking about that. We need examples. We need we need to hear from people. Every congressman needs to hear from people in their district. Yeah. Every senator needs to hear from people in their state. 
Like this is something that affects our livelihood. And, and you know, if you think about it, seller financing is what provides home ownership when likely these people wouldn't have home ownership yeah. on the buyer side. And it wasn't, in the grand scheme of things, it wasn't too long ago where this is just the way homes were sold, right? Like That's it. 40 years ago, seller financing was totally normal. It was some time in the last 40, 50 years where Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and all these institutions were created for bankers to benefit. Creative financing didn't just start. Right. You know, sometimes we see Facebook and, you know, the other social media platforms and we right. act like creative financing just started. They definitely didn't. Right. No, it's been around longer than conventional financing. Yeah. Um, and then uh, I heard somewhere along the way uh, that you are a roping champion. <laughs> Yeah, so Chip asked me to see if you could uh, show us your rope or, or do, give us a little demonstration. <laughs> so what's that story about? Uh, you know, I grew up as a kid, as a cowboy, grew up in a cattle auction barn, and I grew up in a what? In a, in a cattle auction barn, you know, where they sell livestock. Okay, okay, got it, got it. Right? And um, I, I would have sworn at 18 years old that would be my life. I wouldn't have dreamed of being anything else. Mm-hmm. But in the cattle business or the horse business, in fact, I have an associate's degree in ranch management. Uh, interesting. And from TCU, and uh, and that's an interesting program. It's only one year, but it's fifty-four college hours in one year. Yeah. So um, I thought that was where my life was going to go, and uh, you know, it was really because of a disruptive market that really changed gears. When I graduated in nineteen. 79 or 1980 from that program, interest rates were 20%. Wow. So, you know, like to go borrow money and have a ranching operation or whatever and stuff, it, was, it wasn't very practical. Yeah. And so that's what led me into, um, you know, eventually, fi- you know, finding my father-in-law who introduced me to the note business. Yeah. And uh, so I get to go play cowboy a little bit right now, <laughs> but I'm just – I'm not trying to make a living doing it. And um, and so, you know, many years ago, back in the late 80s, um, I got lucky enough to win the world in the horse show deal a couple of times as a amateur team roper. So That's pretty cool. I'm a, I'm a has-been, though. <laughs> I mean, it's cool, though, to win a champion of anything, right? Even though it was amateur level. Like, no one ever, like, knocks off someone that's like, I got, got a Golden Gloves champion. Like, yeah, it was just an amateur play. Like, no, it's still pretty good. You've got golden gloves. Uh, so the Seller Finance Coalition. Mm-hmm. Who's org. It, org. Who Who's in that coalition? So um, we there's there's a group of us that originally founded it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, you, you know Jeff Watson. Mm-hmm. So Jeff's deeply involved in it. National RIA has been in, in, involved in helping support us because they have 40,000 members, right? Right. Um, then uh, Bob Repass that works in our operation has been really involved in it. My father-in-law's ex-partner, my father-in-law's passed away 25 years ago, but his partner uh, is Glenn Lee in Houston, and he's been deeply involved in it. Um, Mitch Steven and his partner, Mike Powell, you know, they do about 300 seller finance transactions a year down in San Antonio. Yeah, Mitch is a big name. Yep. And uh, so uh, my, my friends up in the country, David Finolio and Paula Dwyer, um, and that's the guys I do the land business with. And so they've been really, they, the, it's, it's, 
we're, we're all really involved. Lou Brown has helped us, brought a big group to D.C. for lobby efforts a couple of times. So we're, we're a growing contingency, and I think, you know, if people think, okay, if, if this law passes, you're saying that I could go from three transactions a year to 24 transactions a year without having Dodd-Frank. Is that a big deal? It's a significant deal. I think it is. Yeah, there's not a lot of people doing more than 24 yeah. deals a year. Uh, about 100,000 seller finance transactions a year, mm-hmm. and obviously it's growing now. But in, right. but in history, about 100. And, but only 16% of those are people that do four. 16% of those 100,000 transactions do uh, four. That the seller does more than four a year. Mm-hmm. So what you see is is the professional guy that would do a lot more of these. They sort of they sort of curve away from it. And I think that if you can fix that, you fix a lot. Gotcha. Um, and then there's something that you and I have talked about um, where we got to be careful uh, as far as, again, going back to compliance and the law. And it's pretty serious stuff that you might want to investigate whether these tools make sense in your particular state. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that, please? <clears throat> well, specifically sub two mm-hmm. um, and – so in after 2008, the, the big thing, as you well know, became short sales. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people were delinquent on their mortgage, and there became a lot of consultants that are going to help people get a short sale. Yeah. Well, they took their money, but they didn't do any, they didn't do any good for them, mm-hmm. whether they totally tricked them or they just weren't successful or whatever. then Incompetent or malice, either way. Exactly. So about half of the states have uh, basically laws that are consumer protection laws for delinquent people specifically delinquent on their mortgage. So right. about half the states. Mm-hmm. And so if you're doing a sub two and the guy's delinquent and you're unaware in your state, if your state has one of these laws, then you probably would want to know that. Right. Here's why. That borrower is this was copycat legislation, so a lot of the legislation is very similar state to state, right? Yeah. That borrower is a protected class. So think in terms of dealing with a minor or dealing with somebody that's elderly and doesn't have good mental faculties. Mm-hmm. You can't just go do things with them. You can't go contract and do business with them like you can somebody else. Well, that delinquent borrower falls into a protected class. Yeah, and so you are now held to a fiduciary standard. It's a very different standard. It's it's quite different, and yeah. so the it's not that I'm not for sub two. In fact, I made a phone call in your office a little bit ago with a guy trying to figure out sub two, and I was trying to connect him with the right, you know, get him down the right lanes and stuff. Mm-hmm. And I said, don't be scared of it; just be aware of it. Yeah. I said, think in terms of. It's the difference between driving through a town and being unaware there's a speed limit and driving through town clearly aware there's a speed limit. Mm-hmm. One, one makes you observant and one makes you kind of dangerous. Right. Oh, that makes total sense. So if someone wanted some more information on that, what are some things they could do to ensure their uh, compliance? Well, one of the things one of the things that we like to do, we've got um, when somebody progresses with note school, we have a specific video that Jeff Watson has produced mm-hmm. 
and he talks about this specific thing, gives them the whole kind of blueprint, kind of a risk management blueprint, and exactly how you Google the state's laws and what that looks like. And, and then that, that way you'd know if you're in California, if you're in Florida. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Florida has this law. Florida says that if you are, you have been, you've had foreclosure initiated. Now that could be as as much as just a notice of default. Mm-hmm. Uh, Colorado has this law, and Colorado says if you're 30 days delinquent. So not, it's not. We can't like generically just say every state is exactly the same level of what defined delinquent. Right. So I think either way, everyone that's doing creative finance, they should get involved, find an attorney, have them sit down, make sure they understand what they're doing and, you know, uh, be aware of the the law so that they can keep themselves out of trouble. Definitely. If you're doing sub two mm-hmm. and you, and you, let's be honest about it. If you're getting your information off of Facebook, you might want to dig a little deeper before you get yourself in a spot. Sure. Is that fair? Definitely fair. So what is the difference then? Because if we're talking about the, the, the laws and the, the books here, because I was definitely around during the short sale time, right? Like yep. short sale became a common term shortly after I got into the business. Yep. So what is the difference between sub two and marketing to a pre-foreclosure to just purchase their house cash? Well, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I think I think there are some states, as I'm told, you need to be even cautious marketing to a pre-foreclosure. Mm-hmm. Well, because I know like in Washington, uh, it was, um, they call it uh, equity stripping. Yeah. Right? Like equ- they have specifically equity stripping laws in Washington. So I have people that I've mentored. They're like, yep, it was pre-foreclosure. We don't even go talk to them because they're. That's correct. They, they, we have all these laws in place that we don't want to even deal with the consequences of buying a pre-foreclosure in Washington. Steve. One of the things that's happened, you know, we were talking, you know, in kind of my pre-interview with your team. Yeah. And they were saying, Eddie, what's different now than was years ago? And, you know, like one thing that's really cool is information and 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 training and 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 how much easier it is for somebody to get started. Mm-hmm. But there is a culture, particularly in the house flipping world or in the wholesale world. Like when I ask a guy, even a big operator, you and I are friends with some people, and I ask them who their attorney is, and they look at me like I'm crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, you don't have an attorney in your state, like a real estate attorney that you call and ask questions? Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit of, you know, I'm, I just feel like sort of the old man in me says, guys, if you have a business, treat it like a business. Mm-hmm. You probably need an attorney that you can ask good questions to. Sure. Oh, and I think that's always great advice, right? Yeah. So... Um, let's see what else I wanted to make sure we talked about. Um, you know, we've talked about this before because I want to get into what's things we've learned in the last year, but before we, but before we get into what the things we've learned in the last year, I want to make sure we're, we've got a good foundation, right? So I want to talk about first the installment sale. Yep. So the installment sale is obviously a wonderful tool for those that are, for the uninitiated, what is the installment what is what is an installment sale and how is it beneficial for our business well if we're trying to buy a property 
from someone, and then we're trying to get them to own our finances. Mm-hmm. It is. It has been my observation they're very un, unaware of how the IRS tax code relates to their offering on our financing. So let's just say to you, go, let's just, as an example, let's say that you have the burnout landlord. Yeah. Right? And and they have a property. We know they're sick of the property. We're certain of that. Mm-hmm. Right? But now let's say that they're they're now sick of the property, but they would like to keep cash flow. They, and so you're like, well, did you know there's a there's a couple of tax loopholes that are really good for you? And they're like, what? Like, yeah. Like when you sell a property, let's just say I'll use a kind of a visual analogy here because I think it'll make sense. If you sell a property, this represents what you would literally do the day you sell your property. My hand, my hand here represents capital gains would all be due that year. But if you did an installment sale, you lay that down, and what do you have? Well, you have those installments that are due over time, and the IRS allows you to claim the gain the year you get the money versus the year you sell it. Right. Okay, that's one tax advantage. Mm -hmm. But there's also a sister tax advantage. If you if you limit the amount of capital gains that you get in any given year. Now, Steve, I'm going to do you a disclaimer. Not every person's tax situation is the same. So you can't not. generically always say every person. But it is possible. In fact, I'm going to even stretch it and say it's probable that one of these landlords could sell a property and collect a low amount of capital gains over time mm-hmm. and literally never hit the threshold of when the capital gains is taxed. Right. So there, you what? Mm-hmm. You could sell your property with owner financing and and basically not be taxed on capital gains because you took the money and stretched it out over time and low and, and limited the amount of capital gains on any given year? And the answer is, that's true. That's absolutely true. So why is it? we're talking about why you need to know this in 2023, right? Or things you need to know today. Why is it that in our world, this was not discussed until very, very recently? Well, you know, I like creative financing. I understand it. Uh, I think we, we, know how to, we know how to bring the subject up with a customer. We're comfortable talking about it. I think we were in an environment, Steve, for a while where, let's be honest about it, the hedge funds were out there buying deals from wholesalers, Mm -hmm. or there was aggregators that were buying from wholesalers and then reselling to hedge funds, and and they were paying market value and even market value plus. Mm -hmm. People weren't forced to figure much out. Right. But, I mean, you've been doing this, like, you've done 50,000 of these, right? Um, I guess where I'm going with this is that there are things that is really important where you have a professional behind you. We just spent a good amount of time talking about the attorneys. Yeah. It's also really important that we have the right accountants behind us. That's correct. Right? Yep. Because a landlord probably isn't reading the IRS tax code. Most flippers, wholesalers, are not reading the IRS tax code. And so you had recently connected with somebody who was like, Eddie, what you're doing is genius. They don't have to pay any taxes. That's it. So you want to talk about that conversation? 
Yeah, so this was a guy, actually one of my coaching students, a very successful guy. Uh, he has a, a, a specialist accountant. He, he's a CPA by, by education, mm -hmm. but he doesn't do tax returns. What he does is show people tax strategies. And so he was involved in a training I was doing, and I was explaining installment sales. And which I was had verified with a, a tax accountant as well as a CPA, and I was very confident I was saying it in an accurate way. Mm -hmm. And then he goes, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! It, it could get better. It could get really better." And I'm like, "What?" And he, then he started make, talking about these thresholds mm -hmm. of when uh, you could earn so much money in capital gains before you hit a taxable number. Sure. And if you kept that number down on any given deal year. You're like, really? You really could sell the house and not trigger capital gains because you didn't hit the the amount of money you took in any given deer year didn't hit the threshold. And and so that was a game changer. So, you know, that's collaboration, Steve. You and I believe so much. I mean, we're masterminds, you and I mm -hmm. have all these friends that are in the business, and this is how we figure stuff out. Right. We don't live in a bubble. You know, we oh. got to go communicate with other people and stuff. And so I, I would say that when, when we're talking about this, I don't want the audience to feel like, well, oh, my God, I've got to be an IRS expert. So let me, give you, let me give you an analogy I think is true, okay? Don't you figure that every car salesman in the world understands that if you do a lease on a car and, you and you're buying it for your business— that those payments are 100% deductible. Don't you pretty much know every car salesman has to know that? If they're professional, I hope they know it. So so if that's a truth, they just are pointing out something, doing the disclaimer that I'm not a CPA, I'm not giving you tax advice, but you might check into this because I think you're going to find this out. And I think that's how we say it. Yeah. I don't want to get people in trouble offering tax advice when that's because I'm not a CPA. Right. Right, and I don't want to get anybody else in trouble. But if you are aware of a loophole, and I have verified this with a lot of competent professionals that can give tax advice, mm -hmm. and they're like, "Yeah, that's how it works." Right. And so now, all of a sudden, you're just pointing out something to your customer that they would have never thought of. Yeah. So again, just to be clear, neither Eddie nor I are attorneys <laughs> or accountants. That's it. Right. <laughs> We're just sharing what we've learned from other attorneys. And other accountants. That's it. Yeah. Okay. I, don't, I don't play one on TV either, right? Yeah. No, definitely not. I mean, we might say, suggest things as friends on the phone, but we will never, ever uh, get compensated as accountants or attorneys. That's it. Yeah. So, all right. So, basically, we're talking to a tired landlord. That, hey, you know, if we could reduce your taxable consequences or taxable liabilities, how, you know, how interesting would that be to you? And like, oh, generally speaking, right, demographic-wise, I'm going to make a lot of generalizations here. Generally speaking, if you're a landlord, you probably lean conservative, and you probably, or at least fiscally conservative, yep. and you probably hate paying taxes. That's it. Right? So just say, hey, what if there's a way we can help you avoid or at least reduce your tax liability? What's that, right? And then we kind of share these things. And then after that, it's like, and what if there's a way you can avoid it altogether? How interesting would that be to you, Right. Well, and if they're going to owner finance you, what they end up with is is collecting payments. And the reason, Steve, that's so important is because collecting payments now means that you're getting um, 
a check every month. Mm-hmm. I had a I had a student uh, on my podcast this week, okay, and she's an eye doctor, and her husband is a full time real estate investor, predominantly dealing with a rental portfolio. They're in Oklahoma City, mm-hmm. and she was describing a deal where they went from a rental to a note portfolio, and she said we were netting two to three hundred dollars a month. But now that we own or financed it, we're netting $1,200 a month. Now, it's not always that extreme, but it's almost always double. Yeah. Why is it typically because double? you Because you don't, you're not paying the expenses on the house. Mm-hmm. You're not paying maintenance. You're not paying taxes. You're not paying insurance. You're just the bank. Right. Right? So you're getting the income off the mortgage without the liability of you know, having to take care of all those things. And this is real mailbox money. It's real cash. Yeah. yeah. Like, because we, we read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and it's a great book because it opens our eyes. Yeah. And we're like, oh, mailbox money. Of course. Let me go buy some rental properties, and I'm just going to get checks in the mail. Yeah. And it is not that easy. <laughs> you got broken toilets, difficult tenants, and all these other things. But if you can get into the note side, it is real mailbox money. Well. Or more real. I have said this, you know, for 20 years now. I've been speaking across the country, and I've had other, you know, team members that speak for Note School around the country. So I would say easily we've crisscrossed the country, coast to coast, right, speaking to a room full of landlords. And we asked the question, if all things were equal, would you rather be a landlord or the bank? Now, what do you figure the answer is always? Bank. You got it. Mm-hmm. And so, so that people like that idea. I think, I think that's why we built Note School is we're really pe- showing people practical ways to go do this. And so that if you like the paper side of the business, and r- right now, obviously, with the market, it's, it's very, uh, there's a lot more conversation about it. Mm-hmm. But uh, the thing I really like about it, Steve, is you can buy a house and get the seller to carry terms for you, Right. And you and, and when you learn what you're negotiating for, right? You're always a better negotiator when you're clear what you're negotiating for. Right. If you right. know the target. Exactly. And then on the other side, then you can turn around and do a wrap note and resell it, then you get a good down payment and you get a check for a long time in the future. Yeah. It sounds really great when you hear about it and obvious, right? This is the funny thing about common sense. It makes so much sense when you first hear it. For whatever reason. It wasn't so common until you heard it. Um, That's true. So one thing I I really enjoyed in your presentation was the furniture store. Yeah. Right? And now that every time I go to a furniture store, I can't help but have you in my ear. (laughs) Uh So can you you share the furniture uh, story? So you're being a master in negotiations training, right? Mm -hmm. And that master in sales training then you can fully understand that a lot of people don't ask the right questions or sure. they don't right, they don't frame the customer in the right way. So this is where I really learned this from. Okay. So first of all, in order to figure out if the customer is a candidate for to offer terms, if you're going to buy and they're going to carry payments in the future, mm-hmm. then you're going to have to do a, a filter analysis and figure out how much money they could potentially carry 
you know, in future payments versus right. cash today. We call it the wolf at the door, right? Mm-hmm. How big is the wolf at the door, yeah. right? So in order to do that, and I've had people say, Eddie, I've tried seller financing and people just won't do it. And I, while I'm not saying this to them, I'm kind of thinking in my head, you might be saying it the wrong way. Absolutely. You might be positioning it. in the. So this is where I came up with the analogy of the furniture store. So let me ask you a question. Are you familiar with the furniture store carrying installments in the future? Of course. Carrying installments, not in that term. Yeah, but yes, carrying payments. Carrying payments. Yes. Okay. So so you you know this. Let's just be honest with you. Most everybody with a driver's license knows this, mm-hmm. right? It's, yeah. it, is, it is super common that furniture companies do that. Right. So let me ask you a couple of questions. These are qualifying questions because this is what's in their head, mm-hmm. right? Is the furniture company smart? course. Are they making money? Of course. Okay. So now all of a sudden you start, you have something to anchor them making a decision to carry payments because they're, you're, you've used an analogy, analogy of a company that they respect, mm-hmm. they think are smart and they know they're making money. Right. So it doesn't seem like a bad decision for them. Mm-hmm. Right. That's yeah. really, that's super important. The other thing is that the furniture company frequently carries loans with deferrals, meaning it has a interest, no interest now, maybe interest later, and it may have no payments now, mm-hmm. payments start later. Well, if you were borrowing money, wouldn't you like to borrow that money? I would love nothing better than 0% interest paid later. Yeah. Yeah. And so, so, so without having to say that, you're now using the furniture company analogy, and they have now set kind of the industry standard that this is okay. Right. You see, so you're having to explain less or talk them into less mm-hmm. because you're just pointing to somebody that is successful. They're seller financing furniture. That's yeah. really what they're doing. Absolutely. So you're just pointing to someone, someone that does it well in your customer's eyes. You know, the guy trying to sell the house to you, yeah. right? They they look at the furniture company and they say, well, those guys are smart and those guys are making money and they're making a deal work. And so the last thing that this analogy does is solves the biggest objection that most people have that don't sell a piece of property to somebody on your team. And normally, Steve, that's price. Mm-hmm. So can you pay more if you pay later? Absolutely. Okay. Well, see... We know why it's a good deal for you, mm-hmm. and now all of a sudden it becomes a good deal for the seller because he gets his price. Obviously, you're going to get your terms. We've just found a way better way to say it yeah. than, hey, Steve, your price, my terms. Because mm-hmm. that's kind of like... That doesn't mean much. Well, and the reason why I like this so much, because the other way we've done it in the past, like, you know, you understand how a bank works, right? And, you know, you know, you know the bank's making money, this and that, but... Although true, like that's nothing inaccurate there. It's hard for a, a regular person to understand how they're being a bank and selling a property, right? Like you can explain in this that it just takes a lot more work. The furniture, they're selling sofa or selling a table on seller financing. That is such a simple transition. It's easy for you to call your relatives mm-hmm. and say, I sold my house and part or all of the money depending on their situation, part or all of their money. I did kind of like the furniture company. 
I got a better price, and they're paying me later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing, too, the reason why I like this story, because generally speaking, we're talking about sales here, is, you know, we say things like um, terms. Uh, we say things, and there's nothing inherently wrong with these things, right? We say terms, seller carry, owner finance, whatever. And it, it creates a little bit of resistance. Like, well, what are you talking about here? Mm-hmm. And anytime someone feels stupid or dumb, yep. we're creating a ton of sales resistance. And it's making it harder to, to accomplish where I'm helping you and helping myself at the same time. So, um, you know, I, I was at an event uh, this a week ago today. Uh, it was Rafael Cortez's event. We're talking about like, hey, you know, I can't get people to accept terms. Like, what are some of the words you're using, right? And one of the one of the terms is creative, right? And is a common term. If you're in our industry, you hear the word creative all the time. Mm-hmm. But if you're not in our industry, creative is not generally a great word to help a person out of a bad situation. It almost sounds scary. It sounds scary. Hey, Eddie. You know, I'm a contractor. I'm going to come over. I'm going to help you remodel your house. By the way, we're going to do this creatively. How are you feeling about this? Mm-hmm. Right? Or if you were to go into buy, uh, 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 if you were to go get a haircut today. I just got a haircut today, right? And if right before the, they start cutting my hair, it's like, hey, Steve, I've got an idea. We're going to do this creatively. <laughs> you're, you're thinking, no, no, let's do it just like we did it last time. <laughs> yeah, let's not, let's not any, add any creativity here. Let's just, yeah. right? so creative. So there's a lot of words that we can say that can, Add some concerns to a homeowner, and there's something I learned from another mentor of mine, which which is if they have to Google the words you said during the sale, you definitely are not getting the sale. That's interesting. That's right? a great statement. Yeah. So so this I think this was a breakthrough that we, you know, all of the things that you've discussed in years past. We've made all these mistakes, right? We've said the wrong thing. Right. We just have stumbled over ourselves and seen the blank stares and the resistance and the this and that. And so the furniture company scenario becomes very easy. Mm-hmm. Steve, it, Steve, it's, it's like this. I don't think that your house is going to qualify for the all-cash program, mm-hmm. right? The price you need and the price that that we're able to come up with, we're just not on the same page. But there is another program that if you that it would if it made sense for you, uh, then then I I think it could really I think it could really solve both of our issues. And, and you know if you're interested, we could talk about it. Yeah. And then obviously, what are you going to say? Yeah. What's that other program? What is it? Mm-hmm. Well, basically, basically, it enables us to pay a different price because you're doing what I think is a smart decision, Steve. You're basically acting like the furniture company. What's the furniture company doing? Well, you know, you know, if you go buy furniture, have you ever seen these furniture companies and they'll take they'll they'll take payments in the future? Yeah. Okay. Let me ask you a question. That furniture that you're paying for in the future. Let's be honest about it. You're not you're you're not getting that a super big discount, right? You're paying retail. Absolutely. Okay, and that's what you're wanting for your property. Yeah. If it makes sense for them, it may make sense for you. Okay. And and see, we've gotten this far in the conversation, and we never talked about price or rate or anything. Mm-hmm. But we move them psychologically into we're like, oh yeah, well yeah, let's see. In other words, that's what you're looking for mm-hmm. is what you're describing, right? I'm not introducing ideas that are confusing to them, and I'm not introducing ideas to them that there's no no in it yet because they right. don't. We haven't gotten to rate or term. Mm-hmm. I have discovered over the years that that people that seller finance 
will give, let's just be honest, they'll give the farm away if they get their price. Right. Now, what my challenge is and what I want to accomplish as a trainer in this business is to teach the guy who's the negotiator, I want to teach them what they're negotiating for. Where's the money at? Mm-hmm. And that's where we get to kind of like the car analogy. So before you get into the car analogy, okay. right? So a couple of different things. First, if you guys find a bunch of value here, uh, Eddie has a, a program where he goes over this, I think, over three days, right? No, this is just a master class. Oh, master class. So, yeah, it's just it's a couple-hour master class, but it's, yeah. yeah. So we got a master class. If you guys are interested in checking that out, go to noteschool.com slash trang. So noteschool.com slash T-R-A-N-G. The other thing, uh, before we get to the car situation, is I've heard people pitch creative, and some of the people that pitch creative, I don't know exactly where they're going with this, right? And the way I compare this is, Eddie, did anyone try to convince you to buy an NFC last year? Anybody? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So when they were talking to you about NFTs, you were like, what in tarnation did this guy just say? Exactly. Right? Like, I have to buy what? I have to go buy something off the blockchain. Yeah. And I got to get Ethereum. And I got to get a MetaMask. And I got to go over here. I got to move money. And there's this whole thing. Yeah. Talk about the metaverse and this mm-hmm. and that. And this whole time, we're like, what? My fear, because I've listened to salespeople, right, talking to homeowners about creative terms. Like, everything you just did to that poor homeowner is exactly what I did to you guys last year when I was talking about NFTs. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. Like, and their eyes are open, like, okay, I don't know what planet Steve is on right now, but it's not the same planet that I am on. Yeah. So if you guys are saying, pitching creative terms the wrong way, just imagine all those conversations you had last year with your friends that were buying NFTs that are trying to explain it to you. If yeah. you're doing it the wrong way, that's what you're doing. Uh, that, that experience you had with your friends is exactly what you're doing to those poor homeowners. Yeah, I think just, you know, th- th- they say the most thing, the most important thing in business is keeping it simple. Yeah. Right? And we, that's, that's kind of our little phrase, making simple cre- creative offers to all qualified leads. Now, filtering to determine if they can carry seller financing at all is another big emphasis. This master class you mentioned, mm-hmm. we break that down pretty simple and show you different ways. There's paths that you take a deal down. Some people can only finance just a sliver of the deal, say 20%. Some people could finance 50% of the deal. Mm-hmm. Some landlord may own it free and clear, and he literally could finance all of it and have a tax strategy and a cash flow that he never dreamed of. So there are not every customer doesn't fit exactly in the same box. Right. All right. I want to talk about learning what you're negotiating for. Sure. Because this is this is where the rubber meets the road. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you and I have been down the road with this, and and I I know, and I consider you like a crazy astute real estate investor. You know, like you you're you're good with numbers. You're great. You're you're the king with negotiations. You have all of these components. Great combination. A complete investor, I would yeah. say. Right. So you caught this maybe quicker than somebody that didn't have all of that background. But when I started talking about how to structure terms, mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you're like, oh, yeah, I can see that. Because I'm teaching you where the money's at. Right. Right? So let's use the car analogy. Okay? 
pretty much every big new car dealership model in America is all the same way. Okay, they have enterprises within the business. They have new say new car sales. They have the finance department. They have used car sales. So of those three, what's the most profitable? Finance department. Why? I don't know. Well, <laughs> so, so so first of all, I only know that the best salespeople move into the finance. They, they do. They take the car guy, the new and the used guy. A hundred percent. You're really good. Go to the finance department. That that is a hundred percent true. So here's here's how I generally believe it works today with modern day technology. I'll bet you, Steve, as good as you are at research that when you get ready to go buy a car, you're going to pretty much know what that car costs the dealership 100%. before you drive up. Oh, yeah. Okay, well, now you now you t- the sales guy, the new car sales guy doesn't have any unique advantage with you, Mm-mm. right? Right. Okay, do you know where the money's at in the finance department? I know it's financing me something. See, that's, but you're right. But, but... Let's let's talk about what really. I'm not happens. trying to make your job difficult here. I just know that you, you generally say no to everything, right? Like I, you say no to like you know the paint protection, the rust protection, and all these other things. I know that. But people don't say no to it. But even when you do say no to all those things, they're still making money from it. On the uh, like, I remember when I leased my BMW a few years ago. Hey, you know that you're gonna have to replace the brakes, right? And after you replace the brakes, you're gonna have to do an alignment. Yeah. Because you can't replace the brakes without realigning your car. Right. I believe. I don't know. That's what they told me. Right. And so like, would you rather pay at the time it's due or just finance it? And I look at it. It's like, well, they're breaking out the payments into exact payments at what appears to be 0% interest. Yeah. So I'm looking at this. Really, the only thing I can say for sure is they're just making sure I don't go get my brakes replaced somewhere else. But anyway, going back to. So, so think in terms of this. Right, the a GM store, a Ford store, not not a BMW store, yeah, but a GM store, a Ford store. There, the industry standard profit in new car sales is about fifteen hundred bucks. Finance department, thirty four hundred bucks. Wow. So the the deal is, if 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 you were Steve, if you were if if somebody took you in and trained you at all the profit centers. Mm-hmm. in the finance department, then you would know it. Right. And and you would be great at it because you're smart and you would know this, but you're not trained. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest with you. You're a smart guy, but you don't necessarily know where the money's at in the, car, in, the, in the finance department at a car dealership. Correct. It would be unique for somebody to know that unless they had a friend or unless they had been in the industry. Like there's reasons that you could figure it out, but most people, the general public, don't know it. And that's why they can make so much money in the finance department. Yeah. It's because people don't know what they're negotiating for. Mm-hmm. So I have closed 50,000 note deals. God knows I must have looked at three or 400,000, right? Right. I know where the money's at. My job is to teach people where the money's at. So I'm going to give you a simple analogy just to give you a sense of how this works. Yep. Okay? Most... Mom and pops that will sell or finance you, if you ask them, what is your interest income for the next 30 months, they could not tell you that number to go save their life. Not only most homeowners, 
most real estate professionals as well. Yeah, I'm literally. Yeah. Okay. So that tells me they don't know where the money's at. Mm-hmm. Right. I know where the money's at. Right. I can teach you where the money's at. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, I teach you what you're negotiating for. That's why this is important. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm going to give you an, an example. I tend to teach people to structure adjustable rate mortgages. Right. Okay? Why? Because I'm going to start out at the low rate on the highest principal, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to go to a higher rate when the principal when the principal has been sawed down when they owe way, when you owe way less principal right because most people in their mind if they hear the rate goes from 1% to 6% they just sort of do some math in their head and that's well that's about average about 3.5% interest mm-hmm. right yeah well that's true but the effective interest rate is less than 2% Right. Now it depends on the term. It's not all the same. So, you know, there's some bear, there, there's I'm just giving making a general statement. I can consistently show people how to structure financing that the effective interest rate is less than 2%. Yeah. And it doesn't appear that it is because of the way we structure when you pay the interest and what amount of interest you pay depending on how much principal you're paying interest on. Right. And it it it's just simple math. It is with amortization schedules. I, I'll I'll bet you almost anything that anybody that would come hang out with us, like in the master class for mm-hmm. a couple of hours, we're going to show them like slides and real examples, and they'll be like, "Oh my God, I can totally see that." Yeah. It was a story I told you about. I I did an event last week, right? Mm-hmm. And I showed and, and I asked the class before we started. I said, "How many of you think you're good at math?" And, you know, you about figure about 20% of the people raise their hand, 80% of the people, because, you know, they're thinking they're talking to me and, you know, I've done this for a really long time. So they're thinking good or or, or skilled at something. It's all relative to who's kind of asking the question, right? Right. When I got done and I showed them how, the, how I did it, how the effective interest rate was so much lower than they were thinking, then literally I said, okay, how many of you can see how this works now? And I'm not kidding. As far as I can remember, 100% of the audience says, oh, man, I got this. Mm-hmm. You're just showing them something they didn't know to negotiate for. Right. Well, and I think that's absolutely key. And I think the other thing, too, right, you've talked about this. There's two things you've brought up in the past I think are, are, are on point. First, they, what number do they brag about at the party? The last interest rate because it's the high one. Right. And, that. and then if they brought this to their engineering cousin— like, here's what I negotiated. Can they reverse engineer this? Yeah, the, re- the one thing, one little trick you do, you're going to do, Steve, is every time you change the rate, change the payment a little bit. Mm-hmm. If, you, if, you, if you have one payment and variable rates, that smart engineering cousin can back into it and probably figure, figure the effective rate much easier. Mm-hmm. I mean, assuming the, guy, the guy's really smart, right? right? But if you make those payments different every time you change the rate— I, they don't ever call, nobody ever calls me back and says, I had my cousin figure this out, Eddie, and the interest rate's 1.7%. They don't, I'd never hear that. Right. So I'm just saying that extra thing to know what you're negotiating for is different. So guess what, Steve? The payment starts out lower and goes to higher. The rate starts out lower and goes to higher. Mm -hmm. There's a pattern to this. There is a pattern to it. And again, going back to like knowing what you're negotiating, you got to know 
what you're negotiating for in order to succeed yeah. in negotiation. And it sounds so simple, but most of us don't really know what well, we're Well, isn't that what for. you do? Absolutely what we do. You teach people what they're negotiating for. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's kind of the biggest thing is like, uh, again, in that tra- training we did last week was explaining to people, yeah, if you just negotiate how much you're looking to walk away with versus the value of the house, it's a completely different negotiation. Yeah. But if you don't frame it the right way, yeah, then you're negotiating the wrong thing, and now you're just hurting yourself or, or doing a lot more work than you really need to right. to have an acceptable outcome. The, the other thing is we have tried to create a very high awareness of that people don't have to seller finance all of their equity in order to be effective at seller financing. You know, there's different there's different structures, and that's kind of how we've we've put these into the different paths. You ask questions to customers, including, you know, not what just what they owe or this and that, but you you got to also address what their immediate cash needs are. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, and it may not be just a lender that's, you know, on on a house. It may be they they've got some they got some life circumstance, and so you need to be able to address that. The, the 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 smaller amount they sell or finance, the more extreme we're going to make the note. Mm-hmm. The larger amount they sell or finance, we're going to make we're we're likely going to pay more interest sooner and start making payments sooner. Mm-hmm. But if they just carry twenty percent of the deal, we're probably going to just make that money that's due out in the future. Yeah, with no payments in between. Yeah, so let's talk about that. All right, because we're okay. talking about the three kinds of notes, the three, th- three different paths, like. Um, I had uh, my, my sales team go through your training uh, not too long ago, I want to say, yep. uh, two, three months ago. Yep. And the piggyback loan, like, it blew their mind. Yeah. Right? And by the way, just to – I shared the piggyback note because I learned it from you. And they're like, yeah, Steve, whatever. <laughs> but when the expert comes in and explains it, like, wow, that's an amazing tool. So let's talk about the piggyback loan and the three different options. Well, I think the idea that I see is that I think, you know – Creative financing is not faddish to me. Mm-hmm. It's not a fad. If you've been doing it for 43 years, it can't be a fad, right. right? But creative financing is a little bit fatty at the moment, mm-hmm. right? People are, you know, the markets change and people are, you know, trying to look at new strategies and stuff. And so it's probably the most increased talked about thing in the real estate investor world. And a little bit of that is, you, you've heard me use this analogy before. It's like, oh, so you play football, huh? Well, what kind of football do you play? Well, Eddie, I play, I'm on the B team and the junior high team. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's, you still play football, but let's be honest about it, it's not the NFL. Right. So, what I'm trying to take are some things that if I'm an NFL player, and hopefully I am in creative financing, mm-hmm. I kind of think maybe I am, then how do I teach you filters so that you can apply creative financing to some customer that otherwise you would have never thought about it? Because, Steve, you may be buying a house, and you're, you're close to the money, but you're just far enough away you're not going to make the deal. Does this sound like the normal deal you walk away from all happens the time? Quite, happens quite often. What if I could show you how to increase the price but not pay for it until a long time in the future? The right. additional price is a piggyback second. So it's maybe 20% of the price of the house and you don't pay interest on it, and you just start making principal payments. And it could be five years from now or 10 years from now, right? Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, that deal probably is a closing that otherwise would just flat end up in the trash can. Yeah. 
That's an example of how that's what your team sees. Mm-hmm. Like, oh my God, we're saving a deal here. Yep. Yeah, that's absolutely on point. And again, guys, if you guys think this might be valuable, right? Uh, Eddie's got a a, a masterclass. Go to noteschool.com slash train uh, to get access to that masterclass. Now, I want to answer the audience's questions, but right before we do that, uh, we just want to share a quick message with you guys, and then we'll go into the audience's questions. Before I got into real estate, I always wanted to become a teacher. The main reason I actually have a sales training platform is to actually fulfill my passion and teach you guys more about real estate and sales. Something I've learned along the way, though, is that learning from my teaching alone is not enough. It's also helpful if you learn from others. That's why on May 17th, I'm launching something that will allow you to learn from others that are also doing sales. This is all a part of my mission of creating 100 millionaires. Some of the best ways to become a millionaire is to become excellent at sales and learn how to connect with others. So if you want to improve your sales and learn alongside other sales assassins, make sure you tune into my podcast on May 17th. And as an added bonus, if you purchase my sales masterclass, you will get lifetime access to what we're launching. So to entice you, we are offering 50% off, but this offer does expire on May 10th, 2023. If you want to become our next millionaire, DM me the word masterclass now. On behalf of the media team and everyone in Trinity Mornings, we want to congratulate you for five years of your podcast. <laughs> How you about years. that? <laughs> wow. Thank you for this. That Appreciate is that. awesome. And I got to be here for it. Yeah, huh? I got to be here for that. Uh, thank you. So this is right there. So... I'm right, still struggling with technology here. So, all right, and there we got very kind message from the team. Wow, that's really nice, and a cake, and a cake, which we'll have to celebrate later on with. <laughs> but thank you, team. Appreciate that's great. that. You guys are awesome. Thank you. All right, so let's go ahead and uh, let's get into the questions here from the audience. We got uh, Derek Fuller on YouTube. Uh, does lease ice this lease option and rent to own count as seller financing? Those are no, it it uh, it is it is not the same as seller financing. Although my attorney advisor expert says that you are subject to Dodd Frank with a lease option, just like you are with with uh, seller financing. So if you're doing a lease option. It does not sidestep your sides. You're going past Dodd Frank, yeah. And so I don't think I don't think that's commonly known. But uh, you know, you know the attorney that I work with a lot, mm-hmm. and I think he's the pro on this, and he's dealt specifically with CFPB on this, right? Yeah, the regulatory well, yeah. arm in, in DC. Yeah, the Consumer Finance Protection um, Bureau. Bureau. Yeah, yeah. So if you're going to questions on this, talk to the guy who's dealing with this exactly. with other clients. Exactly. Right? And it's, is representing the industry in dealing with them on yeah. it. So it's not the same. I, I, I'm not, I am a fan of lease options in some scenarios. I particularly love a lease option converted to seller financing. So I'm not anti-lease options in some scenarios. Um, so, but um, yeah, it's it, it really works well if they, there's some reason they don't have all their down payment, for example. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe they're paying 20% down. They only have 10% today. But they're going to have another 10% with a bonus in a year. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a beautiful scenario to go structure a lease option. Right. 
Yeah. Yep. Uh, and then uh, Ingrid Hernandez. Uh, so she says that's literally how they pitched up too, and so they financially they love it. So thank you, Ingrid. Yeah. Pointing that out. Uh, Pixel Dust Tech on Instagram says Eddie Speed the OG. So the original. <laughs> uh, YouTube Chase wants to know is subject to going too much into the gray area. We teach we teach sub two. Mm-hmm. And uh, as I told you, I, I collaborate with an attorney, Jeff Watson, who I think has really studied it and studied the problems with it. I I believe that if you're if I, uh, uh, sub two is not good for a newbie. Mm-hmm. If you don't have a, some deals under your belt, sub two is like learning to drive by learning to drive a race car. It's probably not the right tool to start mm-hmm. with. Yeah, but I think it's a great tool. You know, there's about a million and a half loans in the United States that are 90 plus days delinquent. And uh, wow. so there's a lot of sub two potential out there. So it's mm. too big of a market to ignore. And uh, I think it can be done correctly and safely. Um, and so there, there's a caution flag, but there's not a, there's not a red flag. Yeah. And I think the ultimately what it comes down to chase is with sub two, just know what you're doing, Correct. surround yourself with professionals, people that know what they're doing. And in that way, you can keep yourself out of trouble. I personally love the gray area. I think gray area is how we're able to uh, make more than if we're to just do everything black and white, right? But at the same time, I will never knowingly cross the line. And you can't knowingly know whether you cross the line or not until you firmly know where the line is. You know where firmly where the line is by surrounding yourself with the right people. And I think you and I have had a good collaboration in that regard. Yeah. You know, we, we want the same things for people in the business. Um, we don't want to stop people from doing business. We just want to, we do want to make them aware that there are towns with speed limits. Right. Right. And you need, and you just, so we try to give them the right direction so they know how to do it. It's a great tool. I, I, I definitely like sub two. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, on YouTube, Stephen Caller has any banks, Stop taking payments. So has any? Uh, you might have to clarify the question. Do you understand where he's going with this? Have, have, you, ever, have you? Have I ever seen a bank call a note? Yeah. Well, first of all, let's talk about the note that is most likely to have a problem getting called, and a loan that is the least likely to getting called. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if a loan is a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, FHA, VA, that loan is in a mortgage-backed security. Okay, mm-hmm. so the servicer gets penalized for going and having a defaulted loan in that portfolio. So they're not very motivated. And I'm not saying you can go wave it in front of them and kind of be foolish, mm-hmm. but I'm saying to you that's the least likely note to get called. Gotcha. The most likely note to get called is a portfolio loan or a loan from a private lender. Sure. Right? So, like, if, you, if it's a genuine bank's money, not one that they repackage to the secondary market. If if the funding of the deal went through a mortgage-backed security, it's less likely to have a problem mm-hmm. versus what we refer to as a portfolio loan. As you said, the bank lent the money and it was, they, they didn't go sell it to Wall Street. Right. Right. I mean, I saw in the short sale days, the most difficult banks to work with were the credit unions. That's it. Right. Because it was their money. Yeah. Right. It wasn't like Uncle Sam wasn't bailing them out. It was legitimately 
their money that yeah. they lent, and they were impossible to deal with in the short sale days, understandably so, because it wasn't insured by the government. So then it's a matter of really understanding how to structure it in a way that is um, not flaring it up in the lender's flat face. Mm-hmm. That's how you take title and how you handle insurance, right? If that's the quick and dirty, you know, those, at the end of the day, the things that we try to make sure somebody fully understands how to do is taking title in a proper way and then handle insurance in a proper way. Mm-hmm. And then other than that, the risk variables are proper disclosures to the sellers. And, and if you're going to sell on a wrap note, then proper disclosures to the buyers. Right? And if you think about it, that's, the, that's kind of the trail that, you know, that keeps you out of trouble. Right. And it's how it should be done. It should be. So talk about this. So you talk about uh, proper title, proper insurance. So what is a proper way to take title? And a trust. And a trust. Yeah. And a proper way to insure. Well, you're not going to be, you're not going to, the only way you're going to move that original borrower off of the insurance policy is that the borrower has transferred the property into a trust. Mm -hmm. And that goes back to Garn St. Germain, right? So if you transfer it into a trust, which is allowable, Mm -hmm. then all of a sudden now you're insuring the trust. You're not insuring Steve Trang individually, right? Right. And, and so that's a key element. And if you sell it on a wrap note, then you're going to have to leave the trust as insured and then further have the subsequent new buyers mm-hmm. as additionally insured. Got it. Uh, Chase Anthony, perhaps we should stick to coloring inside the lines. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we should always color inside the lines. We just go all the way up to the line. You know, I was talking to... We do the Whale Club, right? Something to do with Paul Sparks. Yeah. And part of that is, you know, playing your game, knowing yourself. And the way, one of the tests we use to knowing yourself is going back to your favorite sport and how you played the sport. Yeah. Right? So we talked about basketball and how I, how I like to play it. One of the things that I kind of was thinking about earlier today was my – I was never athletically gifted. Right? I've been playing old man basketball since I was 18. Hand checking, holding the hip, whatever, right? My superpower on the basketball court – was I'd always foul you enough where it was irritating, but not enough for the ref to call it. I was all the way up to the line mm-hmm. to have the player, the guy I'm guarding, complain to the ref that I'm following him, and the ref looking at it and just like, whatever. So I find the line, and I play all the way up to the line. So yeah, color inside the lines, don't cross it, but all the way up to the line. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Uh, Dean McCall says they make their money off extended warranty and maintenance, and that's exactly it. That's it. That's it. Right? She's right. I know she's right, but I still don't get it. Like, I remember I was helping my, my wife uh, buy – I was helping my, my in-laws purchase a, a Camry. So I'm there with my wife to, to do it, right? And I, we buy the Camry, right? It's a used car. We deal with it. We negotiate, do all our research, right? That's what we're saying. Like, a poor guy, when we go in, like, we're getting him all the way down mm-hmm. to as little as possible. And we go to the finance department, and I hold her hand. I, I talk to her. I was like, look, no matter what they say, the answer is no. It's going to feel good. It's going to feel smart. It's going to feel intelligent to say yes, whatever they're going to say, because they're the best. The answer is no. Right? As I'm going through, it's like, besides the stupid add-ons, I don't understand how they're making money. Well, the other thing is, is that people spend three hours at a car dealership negotiating the price. Yeah, their willpower is gone. And, and then they go to the finance department, and they think the negotiation's over. Their guard's down. Their guard's down. 
And so one of the strategies I teach in buying houses is we get them committed to the concept of being the furniture company, mm-hmm. and we don't get into any specifics yet. Right. And see, for an operation like yours, it's a bigger shop, then you all of your salespeople can start the first process. Right. And then it funnels to more of an, of an expert that becomes the creative finance person within the shop. Yeah. To, to negotiate the specific terms. It's the exact same concept as a car dealership. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's great. Um, let's see here. Pixel Dust. Uh, can you do a seller finance route for land if you aren't yet current on payment to the seller? Well, I'm, I'm a land guy, as you know. I've, I've, I've dealt in the land business for over 30 years and actively do seller financing on mm-hmm. land today. Uh, let me say this. If you're not current, you need to get that loan current before you sell it to somebody else. Otherwise, I think you have a significant disclosure problem and, a, and an ethical problem. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so Stephen clarifies subject to payments on the bank's being paid to subject to. Um, yeah, so he actually said here, his experience, like I said, we got some seasoned veterans in here. Stephen Caller is, is very seasoned. Uh, yeah, small community credit union stopped taking payments, took several, stopped, took several payments, then said no, which is exactly what we're talking about, right? Yep. If it's their money, they're going to be sensitive to the due on sale clause. It's it's a lot more likely I'm going to pass the sub two if it's a portfolio loan. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, spot on. You got tested. You knew what you were talking about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so... Ingrid, so interesting to hear different perspectives of having a deed of trust. We have expert, experts say the only people who have gotten in trouble over deed, over deed uh, fraud was those in a trust. So you want to speak on that? I've heard similar stories. I don't know the details, but those that were putting properties in trust were accused of being potentially mat- misleading. Yeah, they, there, are, there are bad applications to a trust. Mm-hmm. And so I was on a conversation recently, and I asked this person, what kind of trust did you have? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not an attorney, okay? Right. I have a decent working knowledge of trust. The attorneys I work with have a high knowledge of trust. But I'm a fan of operating with a trust, and uh, for sure. And uh, But, you know, l- you know, there's there's sort of the lawyer in the box thing, right? You know, you, you know, it's these, you know, it's like the same thing as these real estate investor law firms that are all going to form your corporation. Mm. Now, would you go build a $100 million business on the corporation they formed? No. Okay. So that's a lawyer in a box. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So if you have a lawyer in a box thing on the trust, you're probably going to have a little bit of that. Right. Right. They, I, I think we... I think the, the, we take it to a different level, and it's a very intentional trust. Mm. Okay. Uh, keep the questions coming, guys. Uh, so, you know, something else that uh, is unique is because of your experience and your relationships, you get to have these conversations yeah. about the things that are coming down the pike. And, you know, um, I kind of made this uh, comment back when we were in Supergroup, something along the lines of, like, you know, I'm feeling fairly optimistic, but every day that goes by, I feel less optimistic. <laughs> I'm yeah. getting pretty darn near pessimistic. Yeah. And I was saying, Eddie over here has been calling this is going to be a bad scenario for quite some time now. Um, and on the uh, on the ultimate end of the spectrum, we've got Mr. You know, Stuart Denyer at New Western, who thinks like we're going to have a massive crisis in 2028. So I'm not asking you to predict the future, but what you've got your pulse on the thumb. Oh, you got your pulse. You got your thumb on the pulse 
on the secondary markets and what they're seeing. Yeah. So what are you seeing today that gives you cause for hope or cause for concern? Well, one thing that I, I do feel fortunate about is because I've been in the industry a long time, I have friends that make billion-dollar bets, mm-hmm. billion-dollar bets, yeah. right? And so they have analytics firms that they hire to give them predicting rates and predicting property trends and values. So fortunately, I don't have to go to Facebook mm-hmm. you know, or some other social media platform because I, I think there's a lot of well-intending people Mm-hmm. that I see post stuff all the time, and I'm like, that cat doesn't have a clue, mm-hmm. right? I was at a – we did a charity mastermind a couple of weeks ago with a friend. He has $60 billion under management, yeah. okay? I would rather know what he thinks is going to happen mm-hmm. than somebody that just thinks they're, you know, well-read. and uh, Rates are going to flatten, yeah. and, they're, and they are going to go down, Right. Real estate is going to go down, right? Mm-hmm. The the billion dollar bet guys are betting that we're going to have a slide in value between five and fifteen percent. Yeah. Now that's that may not be the same in Phoenix because obviously you've already seen a slide. Oh yeah. Than it is in Atlanta. But I ask the people in Atlanta, why do you think you're so different than the people in Phoenix? Like Steve Trang, my buddy over there in Phoenix, they've already experienced a slide. Mm-hmm. Why do people in Atlanta think they're immune to it? That's interesting. Right. There is a shortage of inventory for sure, but there is but buyer sentiment for property is about a, at a 40-year low. So we have a shortage of inventory and a, a even greater shortage of people wanting to buy. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Affordability has changed everything, but the bigger thing now is we have a credit crunch. Mm-hmm. The credit crunch looking forward is worse than the rate crunch. What does that mean? Okay, so let me give you, let me give you an example. Mortgage Bankers Association has the Mortgage Credit Availability Index. Mm-hmm. So that's an index that they have established to a number before the virus, say February before the virus essentially kind of started in March. Mm-hmm. Okay, the number was at one eighty five. Today it's at a hundred. Yeah. So that means. Steve, that about 45% of the people that could qualify for a mortgage before the virus with the same underwriting standards today, 45% of those people can't get a mortgage. So that's a credit crunch. Mm -hmm. And this this bank thing, I, I believe, is really ugly. I think it's really ugly. Yeah. And um so I think that this the, the bank closings we've seen to date are no reflection of where we're going. And people say, well, why are you being pessimistic about that? Well, first of all, do we all agree we've had an incredible run on deposits? Everybody agree with that? I think a lot of people would agree with that, yes. Well, I mean, you couldn't look at any stats and agree with anything other than that. Yeah. Now, not, not the big banks, mm-hmm. but, but, but regional, regional banks. and community banks mm-hmm. – are definitely have had a big run on deposits. Yeah. I mean, the, the graft is like, look, it looks like the Grand Canyon. Wow. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I know this because I've we, we scraped this for our little TV show, Note, uh, Note School TV, mm-hmm. and I did it like last week. Right. And I had the graft. And I'm like, here it is. It's this, mm-hmm. it's crazy. Secondly, 68% of commercial mortgages were done by 
regional and community banks. Well, those are the ones you typically go to. Correct. Commercial lending. But what, what, so what's the state of commercial lending? Not very good. The train has already left the station, mm-hmm. and it is headed not to a good place. No, it's a dumpster fire. And so for those reasons, I think that that's going to put a lot of pressure on operationally the profits and stability of the banking system. Yeah. Right? So, so let me say this, Steve. We could have said, you know, eight months ago that rates were the only reason people seller financed. I never believed that. I'm just saying people may have said that. Mm-hmm. People seller finance, either buying or selling, when there's a disruptive market. And I would say that my net worth has become crazy better in disruptive markets than it ever was in great markets. Right. We, the house buyers, guys trying to go buy distressed real estate mm-hmm. or buy outland or whatever it is their, their target is, any kind of commercial or whatever that looks like, you should think in terms of we should be the most active in disruptive markets. Absolutely. We sort of got, we sort of became a little confused about that, I feel like, because we all, the house buyers made a whole lot of money in like a FOMO market, mm-hmm. the fear of missing out market, right? Yeah. But the truth of the matter is, if you go back through history, the guys that tend to have done the best and built the best net worth and the best financial modeling have made it when everybody else, if Warren Buffett, Buy when everybody else is scared. Yeah. I mean, I saw it myself personally. From 2008 to 2011, yeah. so much wealth was created by yeah. the people that bought in that time, right? Like, it was at that time where I first learned about wholesaling, and I thought wholesaling was a fad. There's no way this would continue. <laughs> Here we are 16 years later. And, and so here's what I would say. Yeah. I am saying that we are going to do really well because we have a disruptive market, I'm not trying to be pessimistic because I'm actually being optimistic. Right. I'm saying this market is going to produce opportunities if 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 we are clear about what we're negotiating for. Yeah. And very few people do, so it's going to be a massive competitive advantage if we understand what to negotiate for, find out where the money actually is in the deal. That's it. And again, guys, if you're finding valuable, go finding all this valuable, go to noteschool.com slash Trang. Go check out uh, that master class. Now, um, before we, we wrap up here, was there anything you wanted to make sure we hit on today that we haven't touched, uh, that we haven't talked about? I think one thing, Steve, that uh, some people sort of get in their mind is, I had a guy say this to me, a pretty big operator say this to me less than a day ago. He said, I don't, Necessarily, I, I'm, he said, I know I need to trend to do creative. The reason I haven't done it is, is I need, you know, I need transactional income. And I said, so you're thinking if you do creative, you don't make any transactional income up front. I said, because that's not true at all. And he goes, well, I, I, I was, I, that's exactly what I was kind of thinking. Mm-hmm. He said, I was thinking I'd make future income, but not today income. And I said, that is, I said, you need to come hang out with us and let us show you some case studies and show you how people are making pretty solid transactional income today plus a long-term cash flow. Yeah. It's not just money in the future. Absolutely. So that's really powerful. Again, guys, you guys have that URL. Definitely check it out. I want you to think about some last thoughts you want to leave everybody with. Okay. 
Uh, guys, I personally am seeing a window of opportunity in this market. Again, disruptive market. I'm excited to seize the moment. You guys have heard some things I've been talking about. Maybe starting a hedge fund, we will see. So if you have capital and don't know where to get started, you can invest with us. If you have killer deals, you need to close on, but you can't. Partner with us. Go to teamwithsteve.com and let's do business together. And guys, if you again, if you saw value today, please subscribe, right? We got to send as many positive signals to YouTube as possible to let people know that we're adding value and we can reach more people. So please subscribe right now. Hit that bell so you can always find out when we are live. And we do have my good friend Jack Bosch next week, the Land King, I think the original Land King from what I can tell. And he's going to be talking about the state of his business and what you need to know as far as land today. Uh, so, Eddie, last thoughts you'd like to leave everybody with? I think, uh, I think don't be scared to reinvent yourself. You know, even if you've been really successful in one method of real estate investing, the market changes, then, you know, this is my sixth real estate cycle. I've had to readjust a few times. Yeah. And just uh, encouraging, like, it's okay. The water's okay. Just jump in. It's, it's, it's not going to burn you. <laughs> and there's no perfect time. There's no, the, 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 I heard a guy say last week, have you ever heard anybody that's old say, I wish I'd have started owning property or owning notes later? <laughs> we all say we wish we'd have done it when? Earlier. Yeah. Or never sold the property. Exactly. Yeah, perfect. If someone wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way for them to, to do that? Uh, we, we, we're going to do really well if they come to the master class. Mm -hmm. We're going to have a team. We're going to connect with them. We're going to be able to actually talk to them, mm -hmm. understand their story. And so we'll do really well with that. Yeah. And so we've built that lane. It's, it, there's high customer service around hanging out with us at that master class. Yeah. And I, I mean, definitely, I appreciate having you as a mentor, as a friend, learning a lot from you. Uh, so you guys, definitely check out that master class. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you, my friend. Yeah, appreciate thank it. Thank you for having me. Thank you guys for watching. Make sure you guys tune in tomorrow for PTD. We're going to be talking about Dylan Brooks, right? That, uh, that mess of a situation over there. <laughs> See you guys tomorrow. Shout out to Steve Train. Jump on the Steve Train. We real estate disruptors.